0: Like Brandon says, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Just uh, If you're new here, uh, just really welcome, really thankful that you came and uh, just uh, come worship with us and check us out here at River City. So um, so Brandon, I think Brandon mentioned this. So uh, here at River City, we've been slowly preaching our way through the book of Matthew this year, and uh, which is in the New Testament. And Um, And just so you know, one of the main reasons why, and Brandon kind of alluded to this as well, it's just like one of the main reasons why we do that and why that's kind of like the main course, not the only course, but the main course of our preaching here at River City is because that just really helps us um, just really um, hear from God and have Scripture form like what gets set up here as opposed to like uh, me just uh, freestyling on whatever I want to talk about or whatever. So anyway, so like... So, hearing from scripture is what changes us and transforms us over time. So, to that end, so I'm going to be preaching on Matthew chapter 22 this morning. So, just to catch you up, uh, if you haven't been here like, um, over the last few weeks. So, um, over the last few chapters of Matthew, Jesus has been preaching and teaching about what his kingdom is like. So, he's the king of his kingdom, which is important because you can't have a kingdom without a king. And his kingdom consists of not of physical borders, but ultimately it it consists of people. And his people are under his kingship. So he's the one who sets the priorities of of his kingdom, and he's the one who solely determines how best his kingdom operates and works. And his kingdom is so starkly and qualitatively different than anything in our world that we've been referring to it in this series as the upside-down kingdom. And if someone wants to enter his, this kingdom, there's only one requirement to do so, and that is to wave the white flag of your life to King Jesus as your king and as your Lord. He is the king who forgives. He is the king who leads. He is the king who saves. He is the king who loves. Like, he's the Lord over all. So that's important because whether you realize it or not, You were created and wired in such a way that you will not begin to have life make sense in its fullness until you wave the white flag of your life and surrender yourself to him as king and lord of your life. That's the intended response for everyone who hears the call to enter his kingdom. However, that's a big however, we'll see in today's passage that not everyone responds like that. Not everyone responds like that. So rather, in, in today's passage, what we'll see is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they approach him not by surrendering to him as king and lord, but instead, like, they proceed to trick him and trap him and test him. And let's be honest, if you're a religious leader, of all kind of, of all people, like, of, if you are a religious leader, um, you should probably know better than not to, you know, and not do that. But the fact that they don't only further proves that Jesus' kingdom is not necessarily inhabited by people with degrees or advanced knowledge or special titles. But rather, the kingdom of Jesus is inhabited by people who have the requisite, requisite humility to surrender to him as king and lord. But there's one gigantic irony (laughs) with the religious leaders in this passage, which we'll see this morning, and that is we are more like them than unlike them. We are more like them than unlike them. So along those lines, the following is from author Paul Tripp in his book New Morning Mercies. So he writes the following. Late on a Thursday night... You go into your teenager's room to ask him something. You can barely open the door because of the debris that is in the way. There are dirty clothes, spoiled food items, and pieces of technology in a tangled pile in his room. You can't believe it. You've had enough, so you explode at him. I never thought one of my kids would turn out to be such a slob. Don't you have an ounce of self respect? I should take every piece of your junk and lock it away and leave leave you in this empty room until you grow up because in my day, I would have never treated my stuff like this. Now unpack this statement with me. As you're exploding at him, your teenager isn't saying to himself, my, this is helpful. This is a truly wise person who is saying very helpful things to me for the sake of my growth and maturity. I am so thankful for their loving guidance in my life. He's not saying this to himself for obvious reasons. But let's get to the heart of the matter. It is your self-righteousness that permits you to be angry and unkind to your child. You're not greeting his laziness with gracious parental wisdom because you think you are fundamentally different than him you don't think you are like him. Grace characterizes your interactions with people when you come to the humble realization of how deep your need for grace was and continues to be. When you enter your teenager's room with the recognition that you are more like him than unlike him, then there is compassion in the way that you handle his sin and foolishness. One of the keys to being a follower of Jesus is to admit that there are few struggles in others that don't also exist in some way in your life as well. So and for the purpose of this sermon here this morning, um, the main thing to notice in what Paul Tripp is saying in, in that little excerpt right there is that when we look at the sin and foolishness of others, we should recognize in one way or another that we are more like them than unlike them. That's because there are a few struggles in others that don't also exist in some way in us. And that's true when it comes to our interactions with our know it all teenagers, with our strong willed three year olds, with our supervisor who's in the middle of stifling our career. Or with our spouse who can just nev- we can never totally get on the same page with because they just don't get it. We are more like them than unlike them. And that's even true when it comes to sermons this morning when we read about bad guy religious leaders. Because it's really tempting to look at them and think, wow, I am so unlike them. But scratch the surface on your own heart And you'll see that even when it comes to the bad guy religious leaders that we see in this passage, we are more like them than unlike them. And that makes sense because in the grand scheme of things, the world isn't divided into good guys and bad guys. Because from a gospel perspective, the way the world is divided is that we're all the bad guys and Jesus is the good guy. Like, that's how the world's divided. So we'll see in this passage here in Matthew 22 that the religious leaders refuse to call Jesus Lord, and they do that by tricking him and trapping him and testing him. And we're more like them than unlike them because whether we realize it or not, we have tendencies to trick him and trap him and test him. So this morning I'm going to read uh, this passage in Matthew 22. And so I'm going to explain a little bit of of it as we go along, and then I'm going to explain some of the ways that we're like the religious leaders, and then I'm going to show us how the gospel sets us free from all of that. So let's pray. So God, um, we just pray that like your truth from the Scriptures will just really like um, your truth will really emanate um, from the Scriptures. With that, I pray that you just really help us to see like how the gospel frees us from everything that we see in, um, that you present to us in scripture and like your spirit is the one who does that God. So, so I can't do it with my rhetor- rhetorical devices and just like um, clever sermon techniques or whatever, but you're the one who does all that God. So we just really trust you and we love you. Amen. All right, so let's read this morning's passages for, passage from Matthew 22 verses 15 through 46. will be up on the screen as well. So up to this point, Jesus has been talking about his kingdom and calling people to surrender to him as king and lord. And then the religious leaders uh, start interacting with him. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Now the Pharisees were a really conservative religious group of leaders who were just really legalistic and overly strict. And they had plans to trap Jesus in his words, which might sound a little crazy because it is. Because imagine if you were like in first century Israel and you had heard about like this guy who had been, like for the last three years, has been doing miracles throughout the countryside and even once in a while raising somebody from the dead. And then he, that guy calls himself God, and then you see him and you're like, I'm going to trap that guy, of all people, in his words. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And the Herodians are no big deal in this passage. Like, that was just like a kind of a first century political activism commu- committee. And they were just involved in the squabble because they really thought Jesus was going to get involved in this first century political scene, which he totally isn't <laughs> because that's, the kingdom of politics isn't the kingdom that Jesus is most interested, not by a mile. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're saying all these really nice things to Jesus, but they don't actually mean it. They're just speaking a bunch of flattering words to him so that they can curry favor with him so that they can eventually aim, to aim a question at him that's really aimed at destroying him. They're just being really insincere. Verse 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay, pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So, long story short, the imperial tax was a tax where you basically had to give money to the Roman government just for having a pulse. It wasn't like paying a tax and it's like, "Oh, I got a road out of this." this was just, no, it was just like paying tax just for the sake of like, well, we can get it from you. So this was re the Jewish people felt really exploited and it was, it was by this and it was just really really unpopular. So this question that they're asking is obviously a trap because if Jesus answers it with a clear yes or no, then he's going to be in hot water either with the crowd or with the government. So if he says, yes, you should pay the imperial tax, the crowd is probably going to turn on him because the Jewish people really didn't like being occupied and exploited by the Roman government. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, then the Roman government would probably label him as an insurrectionist, and then they're going to murder him. So this is really set up as kind of a lose-lose situation for Jesus. How does he get out of this trap? Verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius which is basically a silver coin, and that was the amount of money that you would get if you had a blue-collar job, and just like, that was money, the money that you made for a, a day's work. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, "'Whose image is this, and whose inscription?' "'Caesar's,' they replied. Then he said to them, "'So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, "'and to God what is God's.' "'When they heard this, they were amazed.' So they left him and went away. So they were trying to trap him, but he wouldn't let them. Jesus was saying that you have obligations to Caesar as part of living here, and you've also got obligations to God if you want to be a part of my kingdom. So Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be verbally cornered or trapped. Instead, what he wanted from them is for them to surrender to him as king and lord. Verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, now don't get confused here. This is another, like the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders. The, the Sadducees, those were a different group of religious leaders. But they are just a little more loose with what they believed. So verse 23 says they didn't believe in people being resurrected, which is a fancy way of saying like they just didn't believe in the afterlife. The existence of an afterlife, so they believe in the existence of a God, but they believe that, like that after you died, that was like game over. Life is over. Full stop. Verse twenty four. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So this is how they set up the question to Jesus. So, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and this is just one of the things that he wrote in those five books right there. So, and this might, what he's saying, what, uh, and this might sound really strange to our modern ears, but when Moses wrote this to the Israelite people in 600 BC, I mean, that was a pretty, I didn't personally live there, but this was a pretty dog eat dog kind of like, man, just really rough period of human history where, like, if your husband died, it's not like the wife was able to apply for Social Security and then, like, take classes at NICC to get her nursing degree on the side so that she can get, you know, make a living for herself. No, that just wasn't the societal infrastructure back then. Like, back then, if your husband died, you were likely going to be destitute and living on the streets, so as strange as it might sound to our modern sensibilities, marrying your, widow's, marrying your brother's widow was a loving way to, of damning up injustices against women and children so that they could be cared for and loved and f- so they could flourish in society. Like, so all that being said, this is kind of a weird setup for their question in which they're trapping Jesus. Because the conversation really takes a turn after this in verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Like, that's their question. Like, they lob over this Ridiculous riddle to him, and this ridiculous riddle isn't even a real question. Like some people ask a question, it's not a real question. They're just trying to use the Bible to trick him and trap him because they don't even believe in the resurrection, but in verse 28, they say, "Well, well then the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They're just asking this because they're trying to get him to say, they're trying to trick him into saying, "You're right. This is this like afterlife stuff, this is completely ridiculous. You guys are totally right. And then the crowd would just be fine. this really like, man, Jesus doesn't know what he's really talking about. And then he would like lose his popularity. That was their goal. But Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be trapped. Verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't say that people in the afterlife will be angels. He says they'll be like the angels in the sense that angels don't have spouses and there's not little angel families and everything like that. And that's because from a gospel perspective, the purpose of our momentary marriage in this lifetime is for your marriage to tell a story about who God is. Like, if you want to know more about that, like, Brandon preached a great sermon on that on Matthew chapter 19. So, if you want to look in our sermon archives online, that'd be great. But, and after our momentary marriage here in life has ended when we pass away, then we'll live in complete relational fullness with God Himself where the relational economy with others is completely redemptive and good, which is really hard like for me to wrap my mind around, but I don't let what I don't know screw up. What I do know is because like the thing that makes the afterlife and heaven good is because Jesus is there. Verse 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus here quotes uh, Exodus 3, which was also written by Moses. And what he's saying is that all those old-school religious uh, forefathers of Israel, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... They're with God right now, because Exodus three doesn't say like, "I was the God of Abraham," and all those guys it's like, "No, no like, I am the God of Abraham." Those aren't a bunch of dead guys. They're resurrected, and they ain't dead. they're alive. Jesus isn't going to be tricked or trapped. What he's interested ultimately, is people surrendering to him as king and Lord. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, because apparently this is round two. One of them, an expert in the law, which is a fancy way of saying he's a religious lawyer, which is like, I'm pro-lawyer, okay? I'm not against lawyers. Like, that's a weird kind of lawyer, though, okay? So an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And again, these guys don't actually care what Jesus thinks about this. They just want to trap him in his words. Because no matter how Jesus answers, the expert in the law is just going to be like, oh, so Jesus, you think this one's really important, huh? Oh, so these other ones just kind of don't matter, huh? Oh, so what do you think about that? And then like he would just get in this weird back-and-forth tussle, and then it would just really ruin his credibility with people. They're just trying to trick him and trap him and ruin his reputation. Verse 37. Jesus replied, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself." All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And he's saying that if you have a heart that loves God simply but authentically and deeply without strings attached, then everything else flows from that, including everything that fits in the junk drawer commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. So there you have it. So Jesus successfully maneuvered his way through all the traps of the religious leaders. It's like he just like navigated all that through there. But he wasn't done. Because for Jesus, it's not about winning an argument or showing people up or turning the tables on them. Because what he's ultimately after is, even for these hardened religious leaders, he really wants them to come to him and surrender to him as, for, as, as their king and as their lord. So to that end, now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question to them. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Now Again, keep in mind that like, the reason why this question, he's asking this question isn't because he's trying to turn the tables on them. It's like, well, you tricked and trapped me, so I'm going to turn the tables and get you. Like, that's not his intention. Like, that's not his motives. Those were the religious leaders' motives, but that wasn't Jesus' motives. Yeah. So which family line does the Bible say that the Messiah comes from? King David. Great. Now we're getting somewhere. Verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And here Jesus quotes Psalm 101, which the Pharisees had memorized by heart. And he basically tells them David's family tree, where the Messiah is going to come from. And David essentially calls him the same title they use for God, which is Lord. So what do you think the deal with that is? So David's, what he's saying is like David's son, which is more like a, really great-grandson. It's like, that Messiah is just a straight shot down from David's family tree, like this guy, and David calls that guy this for the same, the same name as he calls God. Okay? So he calls his really great-grandson God. Okay? So like, what's the deal with that? Again, he's not trying to have a... Con- this isn't meant to be a condescending, tricky question. Jesus doesn't ask people condescending, tricky questions. In one way or another, he's trying to help them see that their response to the Messiah shouldn't be to trick him, to trap him, to test him, but instead they should be bowing their knee to him as king and lord. That's what he wanted for them, but they didn't do that. Verse 46. No one could say a word in re- to him, and re- no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So like I said in the intro, um, it's, easy, it's really easy and tempting to look at the religious leaders and be like, I'm so glad I'm not like them. But there's a better response than that. Because when the gospel shapes our hearts and our minds, it frees us to see how even the most foolish people that we see in scripture are more like us than unlike us. Because like Paul Tripp says, there are few struggles in others that don't also exist in some way in us. So to that end, I'm just going to briefly unpack um, three ways that we're, more, that we're like the religious leaders than unlike them. Now certainly there are more than three ways, but that's all we got time for this morning. But now I'm also going to be talking about how the gospel frees us from this stuff too. So the first way that we're more, that we're like the religious leaders, we try to trap Jesus with flattering words. We try to trap Jesus with flattering words. So remember in verse 16, when the Pharisee says, told him, we know that you are a man of integrity and you teach in the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you paid no attention to who they are. Like, Jesus, you don't show any favoritism. You are an upright thinker, and you're like a good thinker, an independent thinker, and you, then they winsomely try to trap him. Like, in one way or another, don't we kind of do that at times? Like, have you noticed times when you say a variety of things to God that are true, but you're kind of sort of saying them because you've actually got a really important request for him that's on, the, on deck in the batting circle? in some ways, isn't that kind of what the Pharisees are doing? Like they're going to say a bunch of really nice things to God in order to curry favor with him because they've got an actual real agenda just in the batting circle, just right on deck right there. You know, and maybe it offends your sensibilities to say that like that's called, that's trapping Jesus, but you know, it kind of is what it is. We're just being really religiously sophisticated in the way that we're doing it. So when it comes to the religious leaders in this passage, we're more like them than unlike them. But the solution to that isn't just stop doing that. Like, that's not the point. Believing the gospel is what sets us free from doing that, not white-knuckled self-effort, stop doing that kind of religion. It's like believing the gospel is what sets us free from that. Because the gospel says that God is a good father Who loves and delights in his kids and is radically committed to their flourishing. And he's so radically committed to your flourishing that he sent Jesus to die in your place when you're actually the one that deserved that kind of punishment. He's such a good father that even when we experience suffering, he's committed to bringing good out of your suffering, not because because he's not just in charge, he's also good. When we try to curry favor with him with flattering words, what we actually believe in one way or another is that God is a stingy boss who I need to manipulate in order for him to take care of me. But the gospel says the opposite. The gospel says that God is a good father, and that's why we don't need to trap him with our flattering words so that he can love us and take care of us and be committed to us. No, he's good to us because he's good, not because we're good. But who knows, Like maybe you don't often use words of flattery to trap Jesus, but maybe instead you use your good works or your good life as a way of trapping Jesus and currying favor with him. Because the lie in that says, I can live a good enough life to impress God, so that he'll have to give me a certain kind of life or circumstances. So in one, uh, one, in one way or another, I can trap him and just really force his hand. But the gospel, the good news is that the gospel says something way better than that. The gospel says that the only reason why God is impressed with you is because he's impressed with Jesus. That's because Jesus lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live. Like he perfectly obeyed, he perfectly loved, he perfectly followed God in all the ways that we were supposed to but didn't. And the good news is that when you bow your knee to Jesus and put your faith in him, then the perfect life of Jesus is transferred and credited to you as a gift. So the fancy theological way to put that is that like, he gave you his righteousness. So that now, through faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect life and track record of his son. Like, that's why God is impressed by you. It's because he's impressed by Jesus. So Jesus didn't just forgive you. Like, he did forgive you. Okay, that's a big deal. Can we agree with that? That's a big deal. God forgave you. But he didn't just forgive you. He gave you his righteousness. And that's good news. And believing that frees us from the treadmill of trying to impress God with our good works and our good life. Have you believed the gospel in that kind of way? Another way that we're like the religious leaders is that we often prefer to call him teacher, not Lord. We often prefer to call him teacher, not Lord. So I don't think I pointed this out when I was explaining the passage, probably should have, but... Did you notice how the religious leaders just consistently call him teacher, like teacher, 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 you know? And like calling teacher, calling Jesus teacher isn't bad. Of course, he is a good teacher, you know. But as we saw in this passage, the point is to call him Lord, like not just teacher. And the religious leaders wouldn't call him Lord. But we often do the same thing as the religious leaders because, again, we're more like them than unlike them. So I've found um, over the years that preferring to call Jesus teacher instead of Lord often takes the form of treating God as the means to a goal instead of be him being the goal. It often takes the form of... Of treating God as the means to a goal instead of being the goal Himself, being the goal. So, what do I mean by that? So, for example, if someone says, "I really want to know God, what God wants me to do with my life, and I just really want to find out well, what God's will is for my life. What's God's will?" Okay. I mean, the optics of that are fine. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. But I suppose the better question that I would just want to ask is like, why do you want to know? God's will? Like, why is that a focus of yours? Like, why is that in the intention and inclination of your heart to really know that? Because, is it because you've surrendered to him as king and, man, you just really want to follow him because like, he's your friend and your leader? Or is it because you kinda just want God to be a religious travel guide so that you can reach your goals of personal and professional success. And by way of doing that, you can just be the best version of you. Like is is God the goal? Or is He just the means to some other goal that you have? Is God the goal? Or do you just kind of want him to be like your teacher, travel guide to help you to reach some other goal that you have? So another example is when someone says, um, "Man, I just really want God to help me be a better parent or have a better marriage." And man, and again, the objects of those things are are totally fine. Um, like I'm pro marriage. I'm married. You know, it's like I'm running a marriage seminar on October twelfth. If you want to come, but um, like. You know, I'm pro parenting. I have three kids. Like, I'm not against that. You know, it's like, I think the gospel speaks into like marriage and parenting and just like it helps, you know, it shapes us with that. But again, like, is God the goal or is he just the means to some other goal that you have of being a better parent or a better spouse or having a better marriage? You know, like, what if your kids experience suffering or if your spouse leaves you? I mean, would you still want to follow Jesus? Would he be your Lord, and would he be your king? Like, is he the goal, or is he just the means to some other goal that you have? You know, I've told a version of this story before, but, um, you know, when we were, uh, when we were planning to um, move to Dubuque and plant this church right here, um, so... Back in 2015, uh, we had some sit-down assessments and interviews with uh, people from our denomination because they just wanted to find out, make sure that we weren't wing nuts who wanted to plant a church. We totally fooled them, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, but um, so we uh, we had these sit-down like assessments and interviews. And one of the good questions that they asked us was like, so what you know what uh, what's really like troubling your heart and what's on your heart about like you know just like um, what are you nervous about um, with planning the church and. So for Becky and I, like, one of the things that we said was, um, you know, we're just, you know, we're just kind of nervous and everything about, like, how, like, our daughters are going to emotionally transition to moving to the view, how they're going to interpersonally transition, just, like, how that's going to go for them. So we're really, like, just, you know, we just told them, like, we're just really praying that, like, God will just really meet them in that and just he'll take care of that and just, like, because we're really trusting him with that. So my friend Nate, he was on the interview assessment team, you know, and he's he's a friend of mine, so he's not trying to nail me to the wall or anything. So he's just at, he asks the good question, like, so what if they don't transition well? Again, he's not being a jerk. Like he's just asking a good question. He's like, what if they don't transition well? Now I, I don't think Becky and I had a really smooth answer for that at the time or anything, but like, what Nate was really asking us in one way or another was. Like, so is is God the goal here? Or is he just the means to, like, some other goal of your kids just doing well? You know? And truth be told, like, some of our daughters, like, transition better than others, you know? And we see how God has met them in that, but at the same time, it's like, it wasn't, like, super smooth at times, you know? And that was a really good, like, I wouldn't say, like, it rocked our faith, but, like, man, it was on that side of the spectrum of just, like, man, it's, like, it just, it really shook us in a lot of ways. But it was a really good time for us to just really see, like, okay, like, we're going to trust God with that, but, like, in the midst of that, like, is God the goal or is he just the means to, like, some other goal? And the point is, is that Jesus is not just a great and wise teacher He's first and foremost Lord, and he's worthy and trustworthy to, to fully surrender ourselves to as King and as Lord. So when we take communion here at River City, that's a symbolic way of responding to him. It's like respond, when we take communion, that's our way of responding to him and proclaiming that he is the goal of our life. He's not just the means to some other goal that we have. He's not just your teacher, he's your Lord. So when you take communion, that's a symbolic way of, you, of responding to him by saying, like, I believe the gospel, and Jesus isn't just my teacher who shows me how to live, he's my Lord who I surrender myself to. So the bread represents his body, and the drink represents his blood, and those things were broken and shed in a really costly but good way for you. So I just really encourage you, like, pray on your own. Like, as you're sitting there, like, right there, like, just pray on your own before you take communion. Just talk to him authentically, and don't make communion like, man, a religious exercise of going through the motions. Like, respond to him. You don't need to be a member here to take communion. You just need to be on board with surrendering to him and following him as your Lord. If you're on board with that, then communion is totally for you. Go back and take it. So there's two communion stations in the back right there. Like, you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, you take it that way. And then the worship team, they're going to be playing three songs, and you can go up and on your own and take communion at any time whenever you're ready. So let's pray. So, God, we're really thankful that, um, yeah, you, um, yeah, you're not just teacher, you're Lord. You are good to us. You, um, God, you are a good, good father you're like you're radically committed to us and that's because like because you are good not because we're good yeah yeah and we pray that like just um, here in the culture of River City for those of us that are here um, yeah that you'll just really empower us to just really um, man to just really call you Lord just like because you are good and you're worth pursuing and man like we really need you for that like we need to be empowered for that Yeah, so thanks for you, and we trust you, and we love you. Amen.